0: Timothy chapter 3, we are going to take our time today through the last several verses of the chapter that Marty read for us just a bit ago. As you know, if you've been paying attention to emails and what we've been saying publicly recently, we are taking the month of January, and it looks like the first week of February, to take our time to discuss some of the elements of the doctrine of the church. Now, on the surface that might sound a little bit dry and a little bit boring it might sound a little bit like uh, you're going to be in a seminary classroom somewhere and that is not at all what we're aiming at in the coming weeks what we want to do is to put in front of ourselves some of the essential truths of what it means to be God's people And then how we respond to those truths as God's people. And and I want you to think of it that way. Because when you hear this phrase, the doctrine of the church, you might think, well, this is how you run a church. Like, that's what he's going to talk about. He's going to talk about the bylaws and how you vote or don't vote and how you establish elders and deacons. That is not what we're going to talk about. In fact, last week we began this by discussing that Jesus is the Lord of the church from Colossians chapter 1 if you weren't here, and I know a number of you were not able to be because of holiday travel and sickness, I encourage you to go back because that's really the foundation of this entire series, that, that Jesus is our hope, him and him alone. But where do we learn about him? We learn about him in his word. And as we talk about this thing we call the church, which is just the gathering of the people of God, Globally, every church everywhere, and then for our church, we desperately need God's Word that we might know and understand and obey Jesus, our Savior, who is the Lord of His church, of His people. And our aim in this short series is to begin the year by reestablishing, by reaffirming the central things that we believe, and to respond to that with faith and, if necessary, repentance. That we might once again affirm that we are the people of God, to find our joy in this together, collectively. And so we will take our time, continuing today, to discuss what it means to be God's people And today specifically to talk about how the Word, the Scriptures, the Bible is the center of who we are as God's people. I want to read for you again this last little section of this chapter. And then we'll take our time in some detail to pick it apart a bit and try to come to some conclusions, not only about what it means, but what it means for us. So this is God's Word through Paul. Right before he was about to be executed for the sake of the gospel to his protege, his son in the faith, Timothy. This is the word of the Lord. But as for you, verse 14, continue in what you have learned. And have firmly believed, knowing from whom you have learned it. And how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. That the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. May God bless to us once again the reading of his word. We have to ask ourselves a question as we come to this really important text. And that essentially is this. Why did Paul say this Here? Why at the end of his life did he say this here? I am not yet old enough to consider what I would say in my swan song, in my last correspondence, my last sermon, my last dialogue with my wife. Some of you are a little closer to that than you used to be, but none of us probably are quite there. But Paul was. Paul had been in prison before. He had been released before. Paul had faced death many times, shipwreck where he almost drowned, beatings, stonings. Paul understood what it was like to undergo persecution, not low-level persecution, the kind of persecution that would cost his life. Paul finds himself in prison once again, and Paul's pretty sure that this is going to be it. Tradition has it that Paul was beheaded for the sake of the gospel, for the testimony of Jesus, for standing up for the testimony of Jesus. Paul seemed to have intuition that this was going to be it, wasn't going to be released again. And he had time sitting in prison to ponder the last things he wanted to say and to whom he wanted to say them. As far as we know, at least at this point, Paul was unmarried, as far as we know, did not have biological children, but Timothy was like an adopted son. Timothy was precious to Paul. Timothy to Paul was sort of like Jonathan to David, if you know the Old Testament story, where two men can appropriately have a deep and committed relationship to one another for the glory of God and for their mutual joy. That's what Paul and Timothy were like. Paul the elder, Timothy the younger... Timothy had seemingly been given the commission of leading the church in Ephesus and having impact in the region. Paul had trained him for this important task. And now before he passes away, he has some things he wants to say to him, some important things. And seemingly, as you read through the letter to Timothy, this second letter of Paul to Timothy, there are certain themes that arise. Paul makes it clear to Timothy that he will not be the only one who suffers persecution. That Timothy better accept it. He better expect it. In fact, all those who live a godly life in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution, according to Paul in this letter. Some will turn away. Some will not endure. In fact, some people that you thought were on your side who bore the testimony of Jesus will be the very ones who bring the persecution. But despite the persecution and despite the people who fall away from the testimony of Jesus, again and again throughout this letter, Paul calls Timothy to hold fast to the Word of God and to teach it and to preach it with courage and endurance. In fact, if you're looking for a book of the Bible to dig into here at the beginning of the year, this might be a good one. Especially if in times past you have struggled with your own commitment to God's word for one reason or another, this is a great letter to see how the great apostle who wrote so much of our New Testament understood the centrality of the word of God as essential for the life of God's people. And now at the end of his life, he writes to Timothy and says to him, you must hold fast to the word of God. And those under your influence, you must help them to hold fast to the word of God. When it comes right down to it, this church, this particular church in this location, in this community, is here for the glory of God. But it is not an overstatement to say that our commitment to the word of God conditions our ability to achieve that goal. To put it more simply, if we are to achieve our primary purpose, which is to bring glory to God, we cannot fall away from the Word of God. It is our only hope if we are to achieve that end. And because we are people that are made to have affections, emotions, feelings, who are made to treasure things, We have an insatiable desire to be satisfied. That satisfaction will go awry. It will go off the rails unless it is conditioned, our desires, by the word of God. In other words, because God gave us the capacity, the insatiable drive to find pleasure and satisfaction, we have to have our lives, our hearts, our emotions, our minds, conditioned and controlled by the word of god so that he receives glory and so that our joy will be full and that joy might be holy that is how important the word of god is it is not negotiable it is not just one more thing we do in some ways you could say it is the thing we do we are to be a people centered on the word of god And so the scriptures are God's word to the church. A simple outline today. We must continue in our submission and devotion to God's word because in them we find salvation. That is what Paul is saying to Timothy in verses 14 through 15. He says to Timothy, you must continue. And for you ancient language nerds, which a few of you are, this carries with it the idea of a progressive thing. You must be continuing. It's not a once-for-all kind of thing. It's a progressive thing. This doesn't happen one time when you're 20 after you've come off some collegiate retreat high. This isn't the kind of thing you give yourself to when your child is sick in the hospital and you bargain with God and say to him, I'm going to read your word if you'll just make my kid well. This is not a once-for-all kind of thing. This is a life thing. It's a trajectory. And what Paul is saying to Timothy is, this has to be the trajectory of your life. It has to lie at the center of who you are. It's not just one more thing you do as a worship of God. It is who you are to be. From whom did Timothy learn these things? Well, we haven't taken time, of course, today to read the entire letter. But if you look back at the beginning of the letter in the first chapter, specifically in verse 5, Paul points out to Timothy that from his grandmother and from his mother, he learned the word of God. As good Jewish ladies, they taught their grandson their son the importance of God through the word. When Timothy rose up, when he walked in the way... And when he lay down, his mother and his grandmother taught him the word of God. It was as though it was the air that Timothy breathed. But it wasn't just Lois, it wasn't just Eunice, grandmother and mother, that taught Timothy the word of God. It was Paul as well. As Marty read for us a bit ago in verse 10 of chapter 3, Paul says to Timothy, "...you, however, have followed my teaching." my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness. Paul came along at a critical phase of Timothy's life, and he amplified the teaching that his mother and grandmother had given him. This demonstrates to us the pattern of what the church is to be. If you have children or grandchildren, you have a responsibility to teach them the word of God. Not here and there, not in a one-off kind of way, but all the time. It should be that a commitment to God's Word forms the fabric of your homes. This doesn't mean that you have to have cross stitches on every single wall of your house. It doesn't necessarily mean that you have to have certain times set aside every day, although that might be a very good idea for you in the new year. But it means that in one way or another, The Word of God has to be in your home and in some way or another through the Spirit has to control your home. And though this is true for us collectively as parents, I would say to you, fathers and grandfathers in particular, you must be committed to this. You should set the pace in your homes, guys. Timothy seemingly did not have this from his father. His father, as best we can tell, was not a believer. And Paul filled that void at a very critical phase of Timothy's life. And therefore, this is a pattern for us as a church that that though primarily the word is to be taught in the homes, the church comes alongside families and amplifies this through discipleship, which gives us biblical basis for something like a youth group. We are a discipleship component that comes alongside families for the good of our kids. We'll talk about that more toward the end of our time. And in fact, next week on the 17th, we're going to talk about how discipleship is the mission of the church, both to unbelievers and believers, that we make disciples for the glory of God. But but Paul patterned that with Timothy. And he says to him, "You, you have to be continuing in your commitment to God's word. You learned these things. You were firmly committed to them, verse 14, and remember from whom you learned them. though Jesus is the foundation of our faith it's important that we have people in our lives who help transmit the faith then Paul subtly says to Timothy because you've learned these things from your mother and your grandmother and from me you see the trajectory of our lives you see how we've turned out we certainly aren't perfect but as we've been controlled by the Word of God you see who we are you see what we know you see Whom we know, and you see what we treasure. Which is a call for us to not be controlled by hypocrisy. You see, it's not enough just to teach our children and others around us the Word of God. Our lives must be shaped by the Word of God. I have a friend I went to college with at my incredibly conservative university. I remember him saying to me, like our freshman or sophomore year, as we got closer, that he felt like this was the most free he had ever been. It was the most restricted I had ever been and still to this day have ever been. But he said to me, you don't understand how restrictive my childhood was. And so I said, please tell me. And so he said, when I was a child and I would sin, my parents would get out a wooden paddle. And it was something like you might see like a fraternity have, I went to a Christian conservative college, so I was not in a fraternity. I know some of you were for the glory of God, and God bless you. But, but he had, his parents had something like this, and they drilled holes in it, I guess, so they could get like wind through it, so they could swing faster. And, and I kid you not, they would write Bible verses on it. Now, you hear that, and it shocks you. And, and even though I was raised in a fairly conservative home and chose to go to an incredibly conservative university, I myself was shocked by that. And then I understood, oh, I understand why you feel that you have now been freed to not hold hands and to walk on separate sidewalks and wear khakis all day long and all that kind of stuff. But it was better than what he had come from. We cannot beat our kids down with the Word of God. I am not prescribing that today. And seemingly, that's not what Eunice did. It's not what Lois did. It's not what Paul did. By this point in Timothy's life, he wasn't beaten down by the Word of God. He wasn't pressed into conformity. Timothy was following after Jesus because he knew that Jesus was his only hope, because people like Lois and like Eunice and like Paul showed Timothy what it was like to walk with Jesus and how great it was. And so Paul calls attention not just to the Word itself, but to the lifestyle of those who taught Timothy the Word. And that in and of itself, though not as important as the Word of God, is a compelling thing. And many of you in your life have people who taught you that. And as I've walked with many of you through the years, I've heard who those people are. It does us well to remember those God has put into our life to help us along the way. But we are to be the kind of people that replicate that. To take the word and to help other people learn it as well. Not just to bring them into conformity, but that they might treasure Jesus as well and that their joy might be full Paul goes on to say to Timothy, you have learned these things from childhood. You've been acquainted with the sacred writings, which for Timothy primarily would have been the Old Testament, although New Testament documents began to be circulated by this point as well. But Paul says something incredibly important at the end of verse 15, and he says, these things, these sacred writings, these truths that have formed the fabric of your thinking and have created an atmosphere for your life, they and they alone are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. We have begun the year 2016, which means we are one year away from the year 2017. In the year 2017, we as conservative Protestants will celebrate the 500th year of the Protestant Reformation. The Protestant Reformation uh, had many components, but there were five primary things that drove the reformers to bring life back to the church. The first one was what they called soli deo gloria. The church is for the glory of God alone. The second thing is that the church was to be committed to the scriptures. They called this sola scripture. All these five things are Latin phrases. If we are to live for the glory of God, we must be committed to the word of God. For in the word of God, we learn about the glory of God. We are saved in Christ alone, solus Christus, by grace alone, sola gratia, through faith alone, sola fide. These five solas of the Reformation demonstrated the things that drove these men and women to sometimes, often, give their lives up for the good of the church and for the glory of Jesus. And it's interesting, right here in this verse we find both of those things that if we are going to find salvation in Jesus through faith, it comes through the word. Three of those souls are found right here. Some of these verses are the things that drove these men and women to give up their lives for the good of the church of Jesus Christ. And Paul calls Timothy to these very things well before they were ever needed by the reformers much later. But as we find ourselves now, you're nearly 2,000 years from when all these things happened, nothing's really changed. Salvation is still found in Christ alone, through faith alone, and revealed in the scriptures alone. So I say to you, my brothers and sisters, if we are to find salvation, freedom from sin, to be released from its bondage and all of its effects, this can only happen through the word of God. I think this probably has two senses, both a positional sense and a progressive sense. And here's what I mean by that. In the Scriptures, we learn how we can pass from death to life. How we can go from being trapped in the the iniquity of our sins and the consequences of that, and then pass to life. We call this, in theological terms, justification. This is a legal term, that we have been acquitted from our sins. We have passed from guilt to to justice in Christ. We have received the righteousness of Jesus, and we are no longer under the condemnation of God. That's the positional sense. The Scriptures reveal to us how we can pass from death to life. And according to the Scriptures, the way that happens is we trust Jesus with all that we have. He takes our sin... And he gives us his righteousness. We cannot earn this. It comes through faith, as Paul says here in 2 Timothy 3.15. But there's a progressive sense as well. We have been saved if we put our faith in Jesus, but we are being saved if we have put our faith in Jesus. That is to say, though we have been freed from the penalty of sin, justification, We have not been freed from the presence of sin. We still live in this world which is very sinful. And often we seem magnetized to it. So what will help us continue along in this process of salvation? Remember, Paul has already said to Timothy, you must be continuing in the Word. You must be continuing in this process of salvation. The Scriptures are our only hope which helps us understand Old Testament texts like this. Your word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. How can a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed according to your word. Timothy had learned these things. He had been freed from the penalty of sin because of Christ being taught through the word. And yet he was still a sinner. And those whom he led, they were sinners. How would they be led away from the presence of sin, from its effects upon them? Through the word. And so I say to you, if you have not yet submitted to Jesus, if you are trusting in your own righteousness, in a church you've attended, in rituals you have performed, you will have no hope and you will have no life. Jesus alone can give you this. And we find him here in his word. Place your faith in him today and you will find justification. You will receive his righteousness and he will take away your sin. The scriptures reveal to you how you can be saved from sin. But for those of us who have done this, who have been saved by Jesus, we are still being saved. We are still not who we want to be. And there is no way that we can change apart from the Word of God, which means that you must be committed to it. In all the spheres, you have opportunity to be committed to it. Corporate gatherings like this one, small group gatherings like we offer during the week, discipleship opportunity, men's and women's studies, time in the Word privately and with your families. All of these components of the discipleship of the church and of the family are essential, are irreplaceable if you are to walk with Jesus and be being saved, so to speak. Habits will not die. Passions for idols will not be taken away. Your love for the world will not be replaced with the love for Jesus unless you are living in light of the word of and therefore, brothers and sisters, this is not something to be feared, to be run away from, to be seen as dull, to see the discipline of being in the Word as legalistic. This is our collective life. Because in it are revealed the words of life and the Savior who gives life. So I call you, even before we get to the end in our deliberate application time, to make this year a year that you live in light of the life-giving word of God. You need to be here to do that. You need to be committed to groups to be able to do that. You need to be committed to each other and to your families to do that. And that's not legalistic. It's for your joy. Do not allow Satan to whisper in your ear that a commitment to the word of God in whatever sphere you are lacking right now is legalism. It's not. And by legalism, I mean that somehow you earn God's favor by performing a certain kind of obedience. Obedience is not a bad word. God has given us his word that we might know him and that our joy might be full. That's not legalism. That's the most sane thing that you can do. Satan knows how to get to us. He's been doing it from the beginning. When God gave Adam and Eve his word about how they could know him and remain in fellowship with him, Satan came along and he whispered in their ears about the goodness and wisdom of God, and they gave in. And ever since, God's people have been tempted to turn away from the word of God because we don't believe somehow that God is good and God is And every time we have an opportunity to turn to the word of God, but we turn to something else instead, be it leisure, be it work, be it other things. And I know all those things are fine and important. You must do those things. But if the word of God does not have some central place in your life and our collective life as God's people, we continue to believe the lies of Satan that somehow we know better and that God cannot satisfy us. I say again to you, The most sane thing that you can do in the coming year. For your joy is to be committed to the word of God. For in it, and in it alone, you find salvation. The writer of Hebrews says in chapter 4, verses 11 through 13, Let us therefore strive to enter that rest, so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword piercing to the division of soul and of spirit of joints and of marrow and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart and no creature is hidden from his sight but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account if it were not for jesus the word of god would crush us but because of jesus the word of god gives us life Because of Jesus, we can come to the word of God and have our sins exposed. Is that pleasurable? It is not. But if you do not go through that process, your idolatry, your passion for things which are not legitimate, or not perfectly good, or things that might even destroy you, those drives for those things will be insatiable. Only the Word of God, led by the Spirit of God, can change you. And then, because of Jesus, because your righteousness is not because of what you have done, but because of what He has done, you can stand before the piercing light of God's Word and accept the verdict on who you are. When the Word of God says to you through the Spirit of God, you lust, you can say, I lust when the word of God exposes your heart as a prideful one, as a selfish one, when you recognize through the word of God that you are not loving your wife or your husband as you should, when the word of God reveals to you through the spirit of God that you are not loving your children like you should, you can own it. Because God does not accept us because of the things that we have done but because of what Jesus has done. And therefore you can own it. But you must not stay there You must repent of it. And because we are in Jesus, we can accept the verdict on who we are, but we can trust Jesus through the word of God to change us. Nobody likes their sin exposed. Nobody likes to be laid bare. But it is through the word of God doing this to us that we change. And as we change, our joy is increased. That is not legalism. It is not a foolish path. It is not a waste of your time. It's the best thing you can do. And in this year, I encourage you, because I love you, and more importantly, because Jesus, who gave himself for you, loves you way more than anybody else ever could, he wants you to know him through his word. And through it, I promise you, your joy will be made full. So we must continue in our submission and devotion to God's word Because in them, in God's scriptures, we find salvation. And secondly, the latter portion of our section for today, we must continue in our submission and devotion to God's word because through them we are changed and grow as the people of God. Because of the scriptures, we are changed and grow as the people of God. All scripture, the Bible that we have in front of us, is given by God. It is inspired by God. This phrase here, the scripture is breathed out by God, comes from a word that Paul may actually have made up quite literally in the Greek. It means breathed out by God. There's no improvement upon the text here. This text captures the idea of the Greek exactly. What Paul is saying to Timothy here is every scripture, every sacred writing, the collective whole of them, they've been breathed out by God. They come from Him. They're inspired by Him. It reminds us of Genesis chapter 1. God spoke and the cosmos came into existence. God's Word is like that as well. God spoke and His Word came into existence. Now, to be sure, people had to write it down. But they themselves were born along by the Spirit of God, as Peter tells us in his epistle that they might record the things that God wanted them to record. Which means that every word in these 66 books of our Bible are inspired by God. And because they have been faithfully transmitted to us now for millennia, we can have confidence that even today, at the beginning of 2016, we have in front of us the Word of God. That means that this Word... These Bibles that are in front of us today are unlike any other writing anywhere else ever. And in some way or another, though we have lost the wonder of this, we should tremble to a degree as we come to the Word of God. That our hearts in some way should be in awe that the God of the universe is who made all things and spoke it into existence through a word, and who gave us his special revelation, this written word of God, we should tremble that he would speak to us. And we should be grateful that he would share with us his love despite our sin. If you've been a Christian for a while, as I have, I'm coming up, I guess, on my 33rd year of being a disciple of Jesus. It is easy to, to look at this as old hat. How many hundreds, if not thousands of sermons have we heard? How many times have we sat down at one time or another to read the Word of God? Small groups, discipleship groups. We have, we have opened our Bibles thousands of times, most of us. But if we are not careful, it's just one more thing we do. It's just one more ritual we do. Brothers and sisters, in the scriptures we find life, both passing from death to life and then being freed from the effects of death and progressive salvation. What Paul is saying to Timothy here in these last couple of verses is that if we are to change, if we are to grow, it's not going to happen apart from the word. This breathed out by God scripture, it's profitable. It's what you need. What does it do? It teaches, and it reproves. First of all, it it instructs us along the way. It, It changes the way that we think. It helps us know God. It helps us know ourselves. And it helps us know what He's going to do about the badness of who we are. Or to put it more simply, the Scriptures revealed to us how great God is, how sinful we are, and how amazing His grace to us in Christ is. That's what we learn about in the Bible. But guess what? Sometimes along the way we turn from God. Our minds are darkened and our path grows dark with sin. The scriptures not only teach us what we are to understand about God, it sets our feet back on the path when we have strayed from it. Many of us do not come to the Word of God because we do not want our sins exposed. But that's what the Word of God does. It teaches us content. It helps us know certain things. And then it helps us know when we violated those certain things. But even more importantly, it teaches us about God Himself. And it teaches us about how to find our joy in Him. And it teaches us about when we don't. What Paul is saying to Timothy is, if you're going to find your joy in God, you have to continue to learn about Him in the Word. But often you're going to stray from him and the scriptures will draw you back. If you feel your heart wandering today from God, then maybe it has been happening for quite some time. The sound that you hear in your ear, that you should not come to the word of God, carries with it the hiss of a serpent. It is the worst thing you can do. It will only lead to more misery and despair. Brother, sister, though it is not fun to have your sin exposed, come to the word of God. Maybe the Spirit is doing that even now. It teaches us who God is and who we are, and it corrects us whenever we have strayed. This third thing that Paul says to Timothy is that it corrects, and he carries with that phrase the idea that it helps us understand how to keep walking, how to keep living the right way. The reproof, the second thing that Paul says that occurs through the Word of God is about changing the way we see ourselves. This third thing, this correction, carries with it the idea of changing the way that we actually walk. That is to say, our minds have to be changed about who we are, and then our behavior will change. Belief always precedes behavior. So the first two things the Word of God does is changes our minds, both in what we understand about God and how we respond to God. This third thing about correction carries with the idea of continuing to walk with Him, living for Him with all that we've got, especially whenever we've sinned. And the fourth thing, this training in righteousness, carries with it the idea of an ongoing thing for the rest of our lives. That is to say... For the rest of our lives, we are to walk in light of the Word of God. So here's the sequence in verse 16. The Scriptures, they've been given to us by God, and they're profitable. Profitable for what? To teach us about God and to show us who we are. For reproof, for helping us see when we have strayed and erred. For correction, to help us when we have sinned and to help us to continue to walk with God. And fourthly, for training in righteousness, that it might become a pattern for the rest of our lives. And so these things blend together. We learn about God. We see when we have sinned. We learn how to walk with Him rightly. And we commit to this for the rest of our lives because of the Word of God. What's the result of all this? What's the purpose of all this? Verse 17. That the man or woman of God may be competent. Equipped for every good work. Several times in this letter, Paul calls Timothy to walk in good works. Elsewhere he says that the good works that God has designed for us are those that we should walk in for the glory of God. In other words, we have not just been saved, passed from death to life, from guilt to innocence, that we might get to heaven someday. No, we have been saved that we might walk in good works to display the glory of God to those around us, which calls us back to what we said last week, that we are to be the kind of people that understand that we have been saved for the glory of God, that there is to be no distinction between being a Christian and being a disciple. Again, to put it simply, if you claim that you know Jesus, you should live for Him. How do you do that? You do that by consistent exposure to God's word. This means that if you are to walk in good works for the glory of God, that the scriptures are irreplaceable and they're indispensable. Or again, to put it more simply, if you are to live for the glory of God, you cannot do it apart from the word of God. I dare say that most of us will never get to the point that we worship the Bible in and of itself. But lest you worry about that and the things that I'm saying today, I am not encouraging you to worship the Word of God. I am encouraging you to worship God. But you cannot worship God apart from the Word of God, and you must see them as a means to an end. You have been put here for the glory of God. You have been rescued by Jesus for the glory of God. And the Scriptures have been given to us as God's people for the glory of God. And through them, we get to know God, and we get to obey God, and we get to display His glory to the world through every good work that we perform. So, the Scriptures teach us about who God is, showing us where we err, showing us how we should change, and helping us continue to walk in the way, in good works, for the glory of God. Do you want to live for the glory of God this year? I want us to collectively. So let us together walk in light of the word of God, for the glory of God, together. I want to end with a final thought in our response. Three things that we can practically do in the coming year, to stay committed to the Word of God. First, by the Spirit's help, we must purpose to instruct our children in an atmosphere of grace. Paul has encouraged Timothy to remember where he learned the Scriptures from Eunice and Lois and from he himself, Paul. This gives to us a suggestion that we are to do this for our young people as well. I remember as a young person who had confessed Christ at the age of seven, but did not really follow him as I should until I was around 16. And I know there's a theological stickiness to that. It's quite possible that I was not converted until I was 16. I wasn't as bad as I could be in those intervening years, so I don't know how to deal with all that theologically. But I know that I didn't really grow a ton until I was a teenager. And here's what happened. Um, I went on a sort of cliched youth retreat camp, and God really changed my heart. You know, a lot of you have testimonies like that. And so that's what happened to me. And I came back from from that summer of 1992, I believe, um, and realized that I needed to walk with Jesus. And I believed, though I probably could not have put words to it like this, that he was going to be the only one who could really bring me joy. And so uh, my life began to change, and my parents bought for me my first nice Bible. You know, I, I had a lot of Bibles growing up, but it was my first really nice study Bible. And so my, I remember my mom handed me my first nice, black, leather-bound Bible. And every day for the rest of high school, which was two more years for me, I would kneel in my bed every single morning, and I would read God's Word. And I, I didn't miss very many days for a couple of years. And I would take my Bible to school with me, to my big public school, and I would carry it with me outside my backpack because I was like this missionary for Jesus – and, and I look back, and I was probably a little bit too zealous in some ways, and um, probably in some ways I did it legalistically to try to earn God's favor. But something happened to me in those couple of years, that morning after morning, in kneeling down beside my bed and reading God's word, my heart changed. The hardness of my heart was revealed. My tendencies towards sin was revealed. And I began to see, even though I couldn't put these same words to it back then, that Jesus was the best that his way was the best. But my parents had prepared me for that. And then they gave me the means to continue in that. Now, I don't still kneel down beside my bed every single day and read my black leather-bound Bible. I do it a little bit differently now. But that was a critical phase for me. And so I say to some of you young people who might be listening today, begin this if you have not already. Be in the Word of God. Not because mom and dad say so, Not because you're going to buy God off, but because it's the best thing you can do now to find real joy, and it sets patterns for your life. Most of us who have kids have kids that are a bit younger, and we have to help them with this. So make this a year that we help our children grow in the word of God, but of course in an atmosphere of grace. We're not just trying to beat them over the head or drill holes in a wooden paddle and beat their butts. We're trying to help them know and love God in an atmosphere of grace. Secondly, We are to trust Jesus, and in doing so, we must not take for granted our commitment to the Scriptures as a community of faith. So Jesus has created this church. As we learned last week, he is the Lord of the church, and therefore, trusting him, we must not take for granted our commitment to the Scriptures as a community of faith. That is to say, we have to continue in these things. Our nation was founded for a number of reasons, but one of the reasons our nation was founded was for religious freedom and for commitment to the Word of God. A lot of the early settlers that came over to America early, they established churches and they were committed to the Word of God, uh, doggedly so. But those early churches, if you go and find them along the eastern seaboard and New England and Virginia and other close locales, most of those churches now are either closed or they're museums or they're inhabited by people who don't believe the gospel at all. And that can happen in a generation. We cannot take for granted our commitment to the word of God, which is why we have to continue to teach it. Week after week, word after word, line by line, verse by verse, all the way through books over and over again because our minds wander and more importantly so do our hearts so we stay committed to the word of god individually and as families and as a church and we're trusting jesus to help us and thirdly and lastly for today for the glory of god we must strive together to walk by faith in the light of his word and what i mean by this third point is there's a collective component to this. There's a corporate dimension to this. This is one of the reasons why our small groups are so important. It's one of the reasons why one-on-one or one-on-two meetings are so important. Because in those settings, we take the things that we're learning and we encourage each other with them. This also means that when you meet with your brothers and sisters, you need something to say. You should have something to say to them. And their moments of joy... In their moments of struggle. You, brother or sister, need to be in the Word of God so that you can help your brother and sister to walk in the Word of God. This is a collective, corporate calling. So in this coming year, may we be committed by the Spirit's help to instruct our children in an atmosphere of grace. May we trust Jesus to be committed to the Word of God because it forms the fabric of who we are. And for the glory of God, may we strive together to walk by faith in his word. We are here together to do that. And I call you to this by the Spirit's help for the glory of God and for your joy. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, now take this word for the glory of God, for the fame of our Savior Jesus, and for our collective joy. May we stay committed to your word. May you help us. May you compel us toward it. Forgive us for when we have neglected it. Pardon us for when we have not believed it. Holy Spirit, for our mutual joy, once again, reaffirm our commitment to it. Create a desire within us for it, we pray. Often our hearts do not desire this. Often our hearts and our minds wander. So please, by your grace, for the glory of God and for our joy, give us a desire for it. May this be a year of growth, not merely so we know more things, but so that Jesus will be magnified and that our joy will increase. Help us, we pray. May this church be a place where the word is heard. May this church be a place that embraces the scriptures for our mutual joy. We cannot do this apart from your help. This will be one more sermon. So please move in us. We ask these things in the name of Jesus and in faith. Amen. Let's.